The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, you know, it's, there's a lot of creative ways to do compassion practice, but uh, the way that we're practicing really aligns with what we find in the early Buddhist teachings. And one of the passages we often chant at Common Ground and even now online for the morning sits, we do that suffusion with the Divine Abidings chant, which is really about establishing from that sense of being settled and trusting our life and trusting presence and the relatively good feeling of that, it's a simple step to realizing this heart, this mind is capable of love, of being good, of caring. And just keeping that wholesome attitude of metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, these four ways that love shines, that love can show up, of basic goodness or friendliness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. So that from that simple joy of being present, the heart is, that goodness of the heart is relatively easy to bring to mind. And this is where if you need a phrase or you bring in a mental image of you holding your cat or some memory where that, the memory, the image itself just reminds the heart that it's capable of this beautiful or simple and beautiful attitude or quality. So we bring it to mind. And then the real practice then is keeping it in mind. Because in a sense, that's what grows or allows that beautiful attitude, beautiful quality of love to grow, is somehow creatively keeping it in mind, not forgetting it. And so no matter what shows up, yeah, different objects can go, but that attitude is actually a perfectly fine attitude to notice whatever else is showing up in our experience. So it's not like we have to keep other aspects of the present moment out of our attention. Because the attitude of whatever particular quality of love, basic friendliness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, those four qualities, those four attitudes, they're perfectly designed to connect appropriately, skillfully with whatever life can deliver. So we keep it in mind. And it's a little bit like, you know, we sometimes talk about the present moment being wild. And as the person who's doing our best to be in the moment, to not forget the present moment, these are the four tools, right? the only four tools we need to stay present. These four attitudes know how to connect, know how to receive, know how to include. And in that way, we stay present because these four qualities of love, they are inclusive. They know how to be receptive. They know how to connect. They're not surprised by what life delivers in terms of experience, inner experience, outer experience. So we've been using primarily compassion, but 
you know, the instructions work for any of the four particular qualities of love. So we're keeping that quality in mind, not forgetting it. And because we're keeping it in mind, we're going to notice something about it. That boundless, expansive, limitless, immeasurable, it has a very particular quality. And of course, we can even, we will even sense it energetically, viscerally, and the body as well as a lightness and beautiful quality, buoyant quality in the mind. It touches our life. And in this way, and this is the point I made last week for those who weren't in, um, in the live stream or didn't listen to it, this difference, and a couple people wrote in questions about the difference between when we're around suffering, our own suffering or somebody else's, there's a way we can take in the pain and suffering of others and even amplify, identify and amplify our own pain and suffering in a way that doesn't uh, really help anybody, doesn't help ourselves, doesn't help anybody else. For example, if I'm really suffering, really hurting, I don't really want my best friend to come and then feel really upset and hurt and burdened by my suffering. That doesn't help me with my suffering that they're being burdened and somewhat overwhelmed by the fact that I'm suffering. What I really would find useful is for them to show up, for them to really see and sense what's going on with me and to model not being afraid and to model being generous and responsive in the face of my suffering, light, nimble, happy, right? And I, I mean, happiness in the, in the deepest sense is very appropriate. It's like, you know, so the lightness that someone who, like a, a wise person who knows how to be, to access compassion, you know, when they show up and they're manifesting their nimble, light, creative, responsive, unburdened way of being, it wouldn't feel offensive to somebody who's suffering. Because it's not like, hey, look at me, I'm happy, I'm unburdened. You know, that's not happiness. That would be some kind of self-centered stance that itself would be its own kind of suffering. So last week I mentioned that, um, and, uh, and it's really good to understand, because I think we're all um, a little bit, in, in moments, a lot confused by how to show up and what's appropriate when we're around suffering. Because it can feel a little bit like we're not respectful or doing it justice if we're not also hurting, because we're around people who are suffering. And so this is our practice, whether it's a moment when you're uh, reading the news or talking to a friend on the phone or just opening to your own difficult emotional, emotional or physical experience. And then to bring this point to mind, I'm told the Buddha teaches that compassion, this attitude that I can access that's available for all beings, right? It's in a sense 
we have this capacity or this potential to be relating to suffering with compassion. So I have some confidence that there is an attitude that's said to be enlivening and liberating that is particularly designed to manifest when I'm around my own or other suffering. So why wouldn't we be interested in looking for that and keeping it in mind when we're around our own or other suffering? And so really challenge yourself. And again, it's it's not like you have to tell the person who's suffering, hey, you know what, I'm feeling really enlivened in this moment being around you. Because the whole point of being in that emotion of compassion is the object is sensing the suffering and this generous spirit arises out of that suffering. Like, I care about your suffering. I don't want you to be suffering. And I wish for you to be free. May you, may you find and realize how to be free of the suffering. And if there's anything I can do, any response that might be helpful, I'm here and I'm listening and I'm ready to respond, but I'm not dependent on being able to help. So if there's nothing I can do, that's not a burden for me. Now that's sort of a provocative thing to say. And we can uh, experiment, like if you have a sibling or some of you, you know, with grown children, I would imagine this would be a very poignant place where it's not really your responsibility to give them advice, but you feel very deeply they're suffering. You're in a way perfectly designed to intuit, to sense how they might be suffering when difficulties arise for them. And yet it isn't really your place to tell them how to live their lives. So then that's a re that can be a really useful place to feel the proximity of their suffering, to feel it touch your heart, and to really practice not taking it on. They don't want you to be suffering, right? So how to be aware, to be connected of what's going on for them, how to feel what you feel in a way that's enlivening. Like, it's beautiful to care. It's beautiful to wish. May you find your way. May you find your way to live your life, to make the choices that are available for you in ways that lead to less suffering, more freedom. May you find your way. That wish is a beautiful wish. And then the, the next step, then in meditation, once we get clear about what compassion is. That's a, it's an enlivening, beautiful quality in the heart and mind, attitude of the heart and mind. Then noticing that expansive, like there's nothing, once we attune to compassion, that quality, attitude of mind, we'll notice that there's nothing limiting it. Like it's not, it might have arisen because I brought this person to mind, but once I tune into the attitude itself, then wisdom realizes it's not about, the compassion isn't about that person. It's its own thing. It's its own attitude, beautiful quality of mind. And I can keep that attitude that doesn't 
depend on any particular object, any particular person for whom I have compassion. So really look in that for your daily compassion practice, being having compassion as an object that's not dependent on a person or a situation that you have compassion for. So you're feeling the expansive and inclusive quality of compassion. So if somebody were to come to mind, no problem, or a situation, or your knee pain, or whatever might come up in that meditation, that attitude of compassion is like totally capable of meeting that, the object that whatever is showing up, shows up, goes away, another thing shows up, goes away, but what remains is that expansive, boundless, pure in the sense of pure, purely free or free of ill will, free of fear, like fear of being contaminated by suffering in the world or the suffering of my friend or the suffering that I imagine might befall me. So we we're, we want to then... Uh, move our practice as we sense that boundless, inclusive quality of compassion, then we want to, the next step is to really notice the purity of that quality of the heart and mind. Pure in sense of what it's empty of. It's empty of aversion, it's empty of fear, it's empty of ill will, it's empty of any wish to harm, to be cruel, to be hostile. It's just, that stuff's just not there. And that can be an object in a sense of meditation, right? A meditation object. We're noticing now not what's there as much as what the mind, what the heart is empty of. We're really keeping that emptiness of the heart and mind in mind. We're not forgetting it. And this really is the bridge between the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, the practices of love, and movement into wisdom practice, and really seeing the underlying nature of the mind, how the mind can be experienced free of greed, anger, and delusion, free of the defilements, free of what's tormenting, right? So we're we're learning about the possibility of this mind, heart, that is free of affliction. And we're getting a sense of the causes for suffering, like an impulse and identification, and then we lose the meditation object, which is the mind that is empty of, of in this case with compassion practice, empty of fear and aversion and ill will and hostility. We're really keeping that in mind and then noticing the purity of that and noticing the freedom of that, like this is the freedom from ill will and hostility. So it makes an impression in the mind, a powerful impression, right? Like uh, in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha refers to this as a temporary liberation of the mind. This is a mind, a heart, that has some real freedom. So let's see if there are any questions that have come up. A couple. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, please. Yeah, Amber says, um, nice and loud, the winner. Uh, can you share some insight 
into the intersection of compassion and grief over the loss of a loved one. Yeah, so somebody wrote about the intersection of compassion and grief uh, regarding the lost the loss of a loved one. You know, my own experience with grief is, um, you know, generally, for most of us, it takes a while to grieve the loss of a loved one. And uh, there are moments when the ordinary, unavoidable, appropriate pain of loss, because that's what loss feels like. It hurts. It's like a tearing. We had a relationship, this person was there, and then they're gone, and that there's a wound there, and it hurts. And so we call that the pain of loss. And then the grieving process is really the heart, the mind, learning what to do with that pain of loss. And of course we try all kinds of things, like pretending it's not there, or blaming, or, you know. But little by little, over time, depending on the situation, we meet that pain of loss, we find it in the moment, there it is, and for whatever reason in that moment we don't run from it, we don't distract, we don't tighten up around it, we meet it with awareness, with wisdom and awareness and compassion for ourselves. Oh, like I don't have to use ill will to be with this pain, I don't have to be afraid of this pain. And those in those moments there's a little movement then, so a wholesome grieving we could say, in the sense of something's moving with less or little resistance. The pain of loss is able to express itself without the habitual contraction around it. So I would say the grieving process is a sort of a microcosm of understanding what compassion is. Because compassion is that attitude that's not afraid to let suffering be what suffering is. Right? Because it, it has a way of being close, which is to wish well. So once we're maybe further along in the grieving process, and we've had a number of times when we've fearlessly relaxed and open and we're actually curious with the pain of loss, and we've experienced some of that movement, there might be a lot of tears, remember, in that movement. There may be even some deep sobs, but it feels good. It's, that's one of the signs of this uh, learning something about grieving, is when we have that paradoxical experience of, of a lot of sadness, a lot of emotional movement, and it feels right, it feels good, it feels healing, it feels like a load has been put down. And so we learn to trust that. And then one of the things that can come out of that is a kind of confidence in the capacity of the heart to meet in our own particular case, this pain of loss, that we can generalize what we're learning in our, in our own grieving process to everybody else. And of course, we see this over and over again, people who have dealt with their own difficulties in life, their own deep, painful experiences of loss, especially those who have had that in different ways happen over and over again, they 
some of them at least, are exactly the kind of people you want around you when you're suffering because they've learned a thing or two about real compassion, like how not to be afraid of it. And the way to not be afraid of it is we need to know how to show up for it, which is this generosity of love, this generosity that wishes, may you be free from suffering and the underlying causes. And that wish comes from confidence, right? Confidence where we've seen that predicament in our own life where we could have gotten sucked into some unhelpful reaction to suffering, but we found another way to be with suffering. So we know that there isn't just that one way, which is to get tight and to resist it and to feel overwhelmed by it. There's another way to be with suffering. And that other way is to let life, let nature, let pain do what pain, nature, and life does. It always moves. Now, it doesn't mean it's moving in the way that we want it to move. Of course not. But that never has been the way life is. Life does what life does. Life isn't actually here. Our experiences aren't here to serve us in this personal sense. Experience or life situations, they're here because of innumerable causes and conditions. And then the question is, what do we do about that? What's, we have the option to resist and get tight and blame and complain, but a wiser person asks, is that helping? And then the wiser person asks, well, what does help? And we learn that when we work with our own grief, and then the lessons carry over into how we show up to the suffering of those around us. Yeah, thanks for the good question. Someone's asking about, talking about abiding and how that applies to the Brahma Viharas, these divine abodes. That's what that word Brahma Vihara. Brahma is divine and Vihara just means home. So, um, yeah, abiding, this um, often refers to especially tranquility practices and um, in some ways, the divine abodes, these qualities of love, are really perfectly designed for tranquility, absorption, concentration, meditation objects. Because they're beautiful. When they're developed, the mind loves to pay attention. And then, instead of me, at some point when the quality, the attitude of compassion or the attitude of love or the attitude of appreciative joy or equanimity, when it's strong enough, then as um, Venerable Analio, this one of my teachers, says, then we need to switch from like trying to generate or trying to arouse the attitude of compassion to being compassion. And that's where the word abiding can be useful. So it's more now, instead of me using a phrase or bringing in a mental image, the quality that of that attitude of compassion is already there, is already naturally uh, expressing its boundless, open, expansive nature. 
And so the job of me as a meditator is to abide, to sort of trust that attitude to do with what, what that attitude does, which is it meets experience nimbly, naturally, it's not afraid of whatever shows up because it knows how to include. That's the sort of essential um, characteristic of these qualities of love is they know how to connect, know how to include boundlessly, no limitations to that. There's one more. Uh, it, uh, I'm doing compassion meditation, but the feeling is not particularly there. Today I found myself quite distracted. Should one focus on the phrases, think of something that evokes compassion? Yeah, so there's a lot of room for creativity in terms of how how do we arouse, generate, and then <clears throat> sustain attention, like keep it in mind in the initial stages of our practice. You know, over time, the more we do it, um, a lot of that initial arousal and or generation and sustaining attention just comes from confidence. Because over time, and not just in formal meditation times, but even out in the world in daily life, we've noticed this beautiful capacity of this heart, not somebody else's, but this heart, to be generously kind and tender and appreciative and equanimous. So then that lives on as that those moments and having recognized those moments where the love was natural, clear, strong, resonant, and then it lives on as a memory. Like, I know this heart is capable of that. So the arousal is really a, a sort of uh, accessing the confidence that this heart, this mind is good. It's capable of relating. But little mental images, I think, often more than phrases. And then, like a memory, like I'll, you know, I, I use one, I have a couple that work for me, but, you know, holding my cat right up against my heart. And I have this relationship with our cat, you know, I, it's really friendly. I'm not, I don't feel like I have to be the master or in charge of the cat. Uh, it's more Wynn's responsibility and it's really Wynn's cat. So I just, I'm kind of like the uncle or the grandfather, you know, I don't have any responsibilities, so I can just have this friendly relationship. And the well-wishing because of that is very pure. You know, I just, I don't expect, I don't really need anything from the cat, but I appreciate it, and I love it, and I want it to be safe. And so just holding it here and having a moment like that, so that memory reminds me of that purity of love no strings attached, not really needing anything back. And uh, and so a mental image like that can be really useful as a reminder of what this heart is capable of. And then the key is not to use the crutch any longer than you need, whether the crutch is a word. Some people just use the word karuna, would be the Pali, or compassion, or tenderness. So just a word... And the word might be associated with some memories or an experience or a mental image. And that can be a starting point. But one of the things that Venerable Analio, I mean, he makes this point 
all the time in a lot of different contexts, and it's really just a reverberation of how the Buddha taught. But it's really important to feel good. And so if we're trying to access metta, loving-kindness, or karuna, compassion, but we're, you know, kind of not feeling good physically, emotionally, or for whatever reason, so generally the first thing to do is to create the conditions where you feel the basic pleasure of being present, of being kind of settled, and it feels good, like to be in your skin, to be embodied, to be in the moment, where there's some basic trust, I can be here, I can be open. And notice that that feels good, and then do the thing that helps you arouse compassion, bring that phrase to mind, or phrases if you like, um, bring a mental image to mind. Sometimes I'll start with my body, it's relatively easy for me to just kind of tune into the <clears throat> my animal body, the breathing body, the heart beating body, different organs, different cells, <clears throat> all the tension that's been laid down on this body. It kind of breaks my heart open with tenderness, like that the body's hanging in there and doing the best it can. So that's another little vehicle that I use. And then uh, that abiding then goes, what I talked about before, um, really that uh, pleasantness of the openness of the mind and heart. It has a very, it's refined, it's a refined pleasure, sublime subtle pleasure, but once you can notice and attune to that, then to notice how it's love, like the love of compassion, that sort of fills, naturally and appropriately fills the space of the heart and mind, like a beautiful tone or coloring for the space of the present moment, the space of the knowing mind. We'll talk, I'll talk more about that next week. Can you please discuss how compassion and pity are different? How to keep compassion as pure and not to come off as pity? Yeah. How are, what's the relationship between compassion and pity? Yeah, and, and some of you know that in the later traditions where they, um, uh, loving kindness practice, got systematized in the Vasudhimaga. This is many centuries after the time of the Buddha. Maybe it was the third century CE. And uh, Buddha Gosa wrote this manual and really systemized the practice where he named like the near enemy of compassion as pity, meaning it looks like compassion, but it isn't. And the reason it isn't Compassion is pity, you know, the way I use the word, and I think a lot of us use the word. Pity is has some fear, like fear of contamination. Oh, too bad. This, is, But it's like, yeah, and boy, I don't... So what we're manifesting, what the heart is expressing in those moments when there's pity is, I'm so glad that didn't happen to me. Because if it did... I don't know what I'd do with it. But real compassion understands that that the suffering that you're experiencing, if it happened to me, I would know what to do. 
Not that I could make the conditions or the circumstances different, but I have confidence that I could be with this experience in an ennobling, enlivening, and ultimately liberating way. Now that doesn't mean I can do it every time. Like in my own life, when things show up that are difficult, I can't immediately always experience that liberation. Like, yeah, this terrible thing is happening to me. I lost my money or I have this illness or this person has really hurt my feelings and immediately be immune or free of that. But I have a lot of confidence now after my years of practice that that's possible. So I'm in the game. Like even when I'm caught and entangled with suffering, I, there's always, almost always a thread. I don't have to be suffering. There's something I'm not seeing, something I haven't opened to, something that will help this heart be unburdened, even with this particularly sticky, difficult set of circumstances that I'm afflicted with. I don't have to be a suffering being. And so that's what allows us, and that's why compassion and wisdom are so closely linked. So that's why we want to practice, you know, in terms of developing this capacity. We don't want to go immediately to the most scary, difficult place where there's suffering in our own life or in our friend's life or in the world around us. We want to start where we can have some real success where we might want to turn away, but we don't. You know, and I've mentioned several of these, not so much in this course, but just over the years. Like I just, being on retreat, where my mind, my heart gets really sensitive, and then running into something like a bird flying into a window. And there it is, lying outside the plate glass window in its last moments before it dies. And it really touches the heart deeply. But because there's some stability in the practice, then instead of like distracting myself, I might just go stand there and feel what I'm feeling. And if, of course, there was something I could do, I would do it. But often in those kind of situations, you know, there's nothing I can do to alleviate the suffering of that bird. But I can practice, you know, like bearing witness and being there with a tender heart that's seeing what's happened, feeling the complexity of that, like that we have homes with windows that cause this to happen, the complicity of that, and feeling how beautiful it is to not have to turn away, how empowering it is to be willing to feel what I feel. It's liberating to not have to run away. And so we build on those kind of successes so that when we're in those moments where something really powerful is happening around us, someone we care about is suffering, or something happens to us, we've developed this capacity. Sure. Okay. Is Tong Lin from the Tibetan tradition of compassion practice? Is Tong Lin... Uh, from the uh, from the Tibetan tradition, a compassion practice. Uh, for those who don't know, and you know, I, I don't pra I practiced it a little bit a long time ago, but I haven't done it in decades. Um, but it's the general 
idea. And there's a wonderful book by Payment Children, Start Where You Are. Is that what it's called? I think that may be the one where she describes the Tonglen practice, Start Where You Are. But anyway, uh, just very simply, breathe in the suffering of others, exhale all of what you have, the safety and the love and the goodness, you give that away and you take in. Now, I have my own uh, opinions about what really happens in that. It's like when we say, oh, I'm going to take in the suffering of others, the truth, I think, in those moments when we practice that is we're accessing the heart that's not afraid to acknowledge the mess, the muck, the suffering of the world. So, and as we say it, we language it as if we're taking it in, but actually what we're doing is we're exposing or we're uncovering the heart that has the capacity to honestly recognize the way it is in the world. So, even in Tong Lin, I, this is my opinion, not uh, what maybe a Tibetan teacher might say, um, what we're really doing is we're accessing that compassion that's enlivened. And then compassion has a generous quality. If there's anything I can do, I can at least wish well for you. I can wish that you have the safety that I have, that you have the well-being that I have now, that you have the resources that I have now. So there are many, like I mentioned, creative ways to access these, this boundless quality. And a boundless quality that has a natural tendency to lead to deeper insight and wisdom, the growing, the development of wisdom. Yeah, so leave that there. And uh, maybe while we're here with questions, there were a couple that came in that uh, I'll cover before just setting us up for next week. So I mentioned that there were a couple about empathy versus compassion, but I think we covered that. Um, And then... uh, Laura asked the question, this is Laura D. Um, My question has to do with understanding compassion as a practice in a moment compared to compassion as a concept or a moral. I feel they can be at odds, which also feels obstructive to truth. For me personally, I've been struggling with this in the context of my estrangement in my family and feeling responsible but incapable and grieving this for all involved. It seems difficult to work with this without coming across implied morality in which I end up blaming myself for feeling like compassion is unattainable or that it requires particular action and behavior. Addressing compassion and wisdom in context with estrangement would be very helpful for me. And I think one of the um, essential qualities of compassion, sometimes we hear that phrase, don't know mind, right? Because it isn't coming from a fixed stance. It's really coming from this capacity to be open. 
and receive and see and feel. And the reason we're able to open is because we're tuning into the rightness and in a sense, the good feeling, the enlivening feeling of being open, not having to be defended. So that's what really allows us to open. And the more we open, the more we're connected, the more we're feeling and seeing, both in terms of the breadth of the present moment, what's happening, but also the depth and subtlety of what's happening. So our response, how we engage, how we respond, it's really going to come more from that place. And it frees us up from feeling obliged to have a plan. So in a way, we're, um, we're not telling ourselves that the way we respond should look a particular way, or we're not saying that I am responsible, and we're not saying that we're not responsible. We're putting all the emphasis in the integrity of how we're relating the beauty of how we're relating, right? We're relating with compassion, which is a non-fear and a non-fixed stance with the suffering that we're aware of in our own life and someone else's. So that's what we're offering the moment. And in a sense, those other people that are you know, in the situation, we're showing up in this responsive way. And I've given this example, not in this course, but another classes, you know, in the couple of handful of times, maybe 10 to 15 times I've been around people in the dying process over the years. Um, you know, I, I felt that impulse to want to know how to be helpful. And that's, you know, obviously a real setup. And it doesn't help the people, the family and the person that's in the dying process for me to show up with this neurotic need to be helpful or to be skillful, right? And I learned over the years, what I can do is I can show up and be open and receptive. And I can, over time, practice being unafraid. And in that capacity of being open, then if I do say something, it's going to come out of the integrity of that connection. Because I'm open, because I'm not afraid, there is that, both that breadth and that depth, that subtlety of how the mind, the heart is connecting. And so, of course, everything I do, even my body language, many words I speak or what I don't say, all of that is going to come out of the integrity of that connection. So we end up contributing and alleviating suffering if that's possible, more likely because of that attitude of compassion that doesn't say we need to have a plan, you know, and that's so liberating to not, you know, need to have a plan. And then one more question I wanted to address, this is from another Laura, Laura A. Here's a question, I think there are a couple questions in this. Here's a question that has crossed my mind a few times. Could also substitute enlightenment for compassion in some ways. Interested to hear any thoughts you have. From the Buddhist perspective, is compassion relative and subjective throughout space and time? And who or what determines that? Is compassion determined 
from the experience of the giver of compassion or the receiver or both or neither. <laughs> Asked like a true Buddhist, <laughs> covering all corners. Yeah, so how do we know compassion is compassion? And I think we can only be responsible ultimately for this heart and mind. And by, you know, this is a, you know, especially early Buddhist perspective, like this is how we really save all beings. This is how we really show up in our world that definitely needs wise and kind people to show up is by, by having this devotion to taking care of this mind and heart. Because any engagement is always going to be through this heart and mind and its limitations. Like when the mind is afraid or when the mind is has cultural biases that haven't been seen, right? Like racism, sexism, stuff around class, stuff around gender. When I don't know this mind and heart, don't understand its conditioning, haven't learned how to be close to suffering, then that's what I offer the world. I offer all that neurotic stuff, all that, those aspects of the mind and heart I haven't seen clearly, haven't understood deeply, then that lack of spiritual work is what I'm offering the world. And this world is arising because mostly we're showing up with ignorance and habits of greed and habits of fear and aversion that flow out of ignorance. So to answer Laura's question, you know, w the relevant answer is we can train the mind to know whether we related with compassion or we related with pity, for example, the near enemy of compassion. Because Pity hurts. Any fear of suffering, any contraction, like the suffering is going to contaminate me, spill over, whatever, that's a tightness. And we suffer with, when there's tightness, when the mind has a fixed stance, when the mind is closed, not open, there's suffering. So because we're cultivating the stability of wisdom awareness, then we'll notice the more often we have moments of freedom, relative freedom, this expansive, boundless quality of love as an, as an example of freedom, right? The more of those moments of freedom, the more we're going to be able to detect suffering when the heart's tight, contracted in one way or another. And then that begs the question, what am I not seeing? Because what grows out of more moments of freedom is the insight that suffering is optional. It doesn't have to be. So when we catch the heart tight, then it begs the question. So the only relevant thing is like, what are we seeing? Does it feel like, does it seem like compassion? Is it in the direction of liberation or not? I'm doing this course with Venerable Analio um, through the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies on compassion and emptiness right now. I encourage you all to consider it down the road. I'm assuming he'll do it again online. And uh, he mentioned 
uh, one of the great elders and um, Westerners uh, getting um, ordaining and really bringing the Dharma to the West was this uh, Buddhist monk, uh, Nyanapanikatera, who was a German uh, monk who went to Sri Lanka a long time ago. He's dead now, but he lived a long time and did some wonderful translations and just uh, really influenced these wonderful teachings coming to the West. And Venerable Analia wanted to meet him and went to Sri Lanka and he had just passed away a few months before. And uh, during that stay, he had the opportunity to spend some time in his kuti, in his cabin. And uh, he noticed as he was sitting there in his seat, uh, he looked in, I don't know, like a drawer or something in his desk, and there was a little note that he had left. And I'll just have to paraphrase, but um, it's something like, is this a cause for dukkha? Or is this a cause for liberation? So whatever we're doing, you know, am I planting seeds for more contraction? Is it tight and leading to more tightness? Is it releasing and leading to more releasing? That's the relevant question. So like if we're wondering if this is real compassion, that's we can just ask right here. Oh, whatever, however I'm relating right now, is it in the direction of tension and tightness and contraction? Or is it in the direction of opening and releasing and liberation? And only we can answer that question for this heart. We might, you know, in observing another, we might be able at times to intuit like whether their action is in the direction of suffering or in the direction of freedom. But we won't know for sure, probably. But here, we can actually train ourselves to be pretty sure that how I'm relating right now, as much as other people might think I'm being really compassionate, I'll know. No, no, no. I'm getting tighter. This is a tight way to be here. I mean, it doesn't mean I couldn't be tighter. I'm not saying it's the tightest way to be here. But I notice I'm planting seeds of suffering. Or, no, no. Definitely, I feel the wholesomeness of how this heart is showing up. I feel the seed, the effects of these seeds. The heart is opening. It's lighter. It's freer. It doesn't matter if everyone else tells me I'm being unskillful because I'm seeing directly. I mean, I might, if I respect them, I might take another look. I probably should. But in the end, we have our own direct experience. We have our own barometer, this heart and whether it's becoming burdened or unburdened. And that really teaches us. And then uh, Laura has another question here. In some frames, we hear things like, love is an appropriate response. But to whom? And does that automatically make it moral? Right? Or maybe does it make it skillful instead of moral? But to whom? And does that auto- automatically make it moral? There may be one view that a person was acting with deep deep compassion, but the receiver of the compassion did not think so. Does that matter? Well, yeah, I think it matters. And remember, because the person doesn't have a fixed stance, compassion, in the same way that liberation, is always moment by moment. 
Like a lot of times we think, oh, that's a liberated being. No, there are liberated moments, right? There are moments where our heart or mind is empty of grasping, empty of fear, empty of greed. And that moment has to re-arise in the next moment, right? That, I mean, that absence of greed, anger, delusion, the absence of craving has to re-arise in the next moment. It's not enough that it happened in that moment, it has to happen in the next and the next and the next. So when someone is acting with compassion, there might be real compassion in that moment, but also in that moment, like because of compassion, there's that real receptivity of what's going on. So we probably pick up that the person isn't benefiting from my compassionate way of being here in this moment. And so the next moment would include any feedback, any uh, thing the heart received because it was open without a fixed stance, like the fixed stance that, no, what I'm doing is compassionate. No, because it doesn't have that fixed stance. The compassion, the words I spoke, the actions I did, didn't come from self-view. They were a natural, they sort of naturally arose out of the wish to alleviate suffering and the relative openness connectedness of the heart. So then, because I have a wish to alleviate suffering, and because I'm connected, something could arise out of that. But it's arising one moment at a time, and it's arising because of that sensitivity. So we'll pick up. If there's any way that a heart can be sensitive, that our actions or words aren't helpful, that heart is going to pick that up, and it will change how it's showing up in that moment. So it absolutely does matter. So even if that person can't express how it's not skillful, the mind is, because the mind wants to alleviate suffering, it's really sensitive. It definitely doesn't want to cause more suffering. And because it doesn't want to cause more suffering, it's really paying attention. And it definitely doesn't want to have a fixed view because it gets in the way of alleviating suffering. If I'm certain I'm right, I mean, how many times have we caused suffering because we were certain we know what to do? So that gets teased out. If we actually don't want to cause suffering, don't want to contribute to suffering, if we actually want to alleviate it, it naturally, inevitably leads to humility and relying more on being sensitive and less on, you know, imagining more certain. So thanks so much for the good questions tonight. Um, feel free to send in questions next week. So what I'd recommend for homework for next week, I sent out an email, there's some study materials there. But really walk yourself, both in daily life and in your sitting practice, kind of just get a sense of the different tasks and skill sets that we need and what we've been studying these four weeks. So we need to feel good enough in life, stable enough, settled enough, to just access that basic pleasure of being present. Because it makes it easier to trust the goodness of the heart, to arouse, in this case, compassion. So feeling good? Arousing compassion is the next skill set. 
keeping it in mind is a particular skill set. How do we keep compassion in mind? Let everything else happen, but keep that particular attitude in mind. And then a related skill set is noticing that boundless, expansive quality of love, whatever the particular quality of love is, because that will really help it grow and stabilize. And then really, the next skill set is the purity of the mind. Get interested when, when you really can abide in love and compassion. Then get interested, I mean, almost as if you're asking the question, what is this mind, what is this heart empty of? Oh, it's, there is no ill will here. So we're noticing what's not there. There's no ill will. There's no even faint wish for hostility or to cause harm. Just the mind is free of any wish, any desire to cause harm. Because that's how we really sense the beauty and goodness and rightness. And then that, seeing that the what the mind is empty of really sets up deeper insights, which I'll talk about next week. The connection between the Brahma-Viharas and wisdom. And as I've been mentioning all along, there's lots of wonderful things happening at the center. You might want to sign up for the weekly email so you get the sort of updates and check the online calendar. All the Zoom meetings and all the live stream meetings are listed there. I want to thank Michelle and Jessica for helping out with technology tonight. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Wishing you all safety out there and happiness. Have a good week. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.